I'm just going to go ahead and pray one more time. It can't hurt, right? Lord, I just pray today. I pray that you would indeed, as Connor said, just draw our hearts into your presence that we would know uh, the truth that you want to show us today. There are so many uh, times that words just don't really do it. We need your spirit to take us to a place today, and that place would be um, um, what's called Golgotha, place of the skull, a place where you died for us. And I pray you would just take us to that place somehow today, at some point or another, that we would not leave today uh, without being at that place in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> more than at any other time in history, I'm a little echoey today. Is that possible to be adjusted? Is it just me? I, a lot of times it is just me, but I, I feel like I'm afraid to preach at this moment. We don't, I don't, you may want that, but I don't want that. I want to be able to get into it at some point. That's getting better. There we go. Okay. More than any other time in history, the world is filled with bad news, right? <laughs> Sometimes before church, I hear little bits and pieces of that. Um, not only is there plenty of bad news being made somewhere on this planet, but every second of every day, but now, today, in the age of technology, we know about all of it. <laughs> in fact, we're all sure to know absolutely sure to know about the worst thing that happened, you know, recently. I mean, if something was bad enough, everyone will know about it. Isn't that true? And we should not be surprised by the bad, since the Bible tells us both that the earth is dying and that human beings um, are born with a bent toward evil. But the question is, where can we find hope? We find hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But why? Because on the cross, Jesus provided for our forgiveness. And in his resurrection, he provided eternal life. These gifts are available for all who believe. This is the good news. Today, the Sunday before Easter, we will focus on the first part of the gospel equation, the cross, where Jesus paid the price, price for sin. He paid the price for all sin. The death of Jesus was sufficient to atone for every sin that has ever been or will be committed. He paid it all once and for all. This is why I can say that I love the cross. Because on it, Jesus earned my pardon from God. Oh, how wondrous is the cross of Christ. Amen? How can I say good things about such a gruesome killing device? Because the cross was God's solution to our sin problem. And our sin problem is the root of all pain and suffering on earth. Even natural disasters, which began when sin tainted what had been paradise before. The cross is the solution to all our bad news. Jesus came down as God in the flesh, and he gave his life 
to cover the cost of every sin that has ever been committed. Jesus received our judgment and paid our penalty. Now forgiveness is available by grace through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Your death penalty has already been paid. The gift of your salvation has already been purchased. Will you not receive it? from the Savior by faith? That's the question that remains for each person on earth. There's good news for you and me today. Even on the day we've set aside to remember the cross, even because of the cross, even in the cross, there is good news. Some have trouble believing all this. I understand. I really do. The Bible is clear that only God can help believers believe. I pray he opens your eyes even in this place today. That today every single person here would truly see Jesus on the cross. That you would see exactly who Jesus is and believe in what he did so that you may be saved. Because that is exactly what it takes. You must put your faith both in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. Those two things are the irreducible minimum in terms of what you must do. You need to fully believe that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, that he died on the cross for your sin. In other words, the cross is the crux of our hope. The cross is our only hope, and yet the cross is more than enough because of who died there. We'll talk about the importance of the resurrection next week, and if you believe Jesus was Lord, that he was God, then you also know that he couldn't possibly have stayed dead. But I am under the conviction that a church cannot properly celebrate the resurrection without first properly remembering the cross. So today we'll think carefully about the greatest sacrifice ever made and the greatest act of love ever committed, that of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero said this about crucifixion. It was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. Some people think crucifixion kills by a loss of blood. But that is not the case. Crucifixion kills by asphyxiation. The victim is placed on a cross of wood in such a way that in order to exhale, he must raise himself up by the nails in his hands and feet. Eventually, he can no longer find the strength and overcome the pain to raise himself and cannot exhale. Therefore, his lungs remain filled with carbon dioxide and he dies from lack of oxygen. This being the case, imagine how difficult it must have been for anyone to speak from a cross. Maybe the closest we can get is to imagine trying to talk during a full-out sprint Gasping for breath, you might try to choke a few words out at a time, all the while knowing you're making the running all that much harder. You won't be able to go as far. I may have a more poignant illustration for about half of you, giving birth. 
I noticed my wife didn't say much towards the end. Based on a few things she did say, it was probably better that way. I'm kidding, of course. She was kind and sweet and nice to the end as always. <clears throat> but the point is, anything that makes breathing difficult makes talking almost impossible, right? And here's Jesus hanging on a torture device designed to kill by asphyxiation, yet he finds the strength to speak words of life. Perhaps some of the most important teachings of Christ were uttered from the cross, even while suffocating to death. Dying words are always remembered with the most care. For this reason, our last words might even be the most important throughout history. Last words have always carried tremendous weight. has become a joke. But famous last words are famous for a reason. As Jesus hung there on the cross, literally stapled to a piece of wood by long metal spikes, he continued to teach. Jesus continued to illustrate both the love and justice of God. In particular, placed in a position so that he was able barely to breathe, he chose his words carefully. Like a minimalist painting his final masterpiece before Resurrection Sunday, using only a few choice colors, Jesus stroked out his greatest work. Today, we're going to look at the words Jesus spoke from the cross. I think it's reasonable to assume that we have a record of every word he said from that painful position. It's possible he said more, but I doubt it. Jesus had received a beating that took him to the edge of death even before being nailed to the wood. It took every bit of the physical strength he had left to get these words out. In fact, speaking these short sentences may have actually hastened his death. Since eyewitnesses were there, I believe they took down every word he said. After those in power had nailed him to the cross and raised it up into the sky as a spectacle, the first words Jesus uttered were these. It says number one in your notes. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I find it amazing that this was apparently the first thing Jesus said from the cross. The nails have just gone through his wrists and feet. The beam has been placed and the post has just been raised up, slamming into its hole. And as the Son of God is put on display, naked, battered, bleeding, the first thing the crowd hears him say is, Father, forgive them. I want to ask a question. How hard do you think it was for Father God to watch God the Son being crucified? How difficult was it for the Father not to act? What if it had been your son on the cross? And what if you were all-powerful? I am aware and have taught you that Jesus was not a son to God in the same way your son is a son to you. But still, the metaphor of sonship is there for a reason in our Bibles. Jesus was basically all of God and part of God at the same time. He was like a son, and even more than a son. And so, it's still a good way to get our heads around this. To think about how God the Father felt about this moment. To think of how you would feel if it were your son on the cross. Remember, when Peter spoke out a turn at the Mount of Transfiguration and God thundered forth, this is my son. Listen to him. I always pictured God a little ticked off with Peter in that moment. 
I mean, Yahweh basically says, shut up, Peter. And that was just because Peter didn't yet realize the full glory of who Jesus was. And so, I wonder how ticked off God was in this moment as Jesus has just been lifted up on the cross. By the way, if you are one who um, tends toward determinism, let me just say that even for you, you've got to know that God gets angry, right? And all this is, even if all of this is ultimately God's will in some way, and of course in some way it is, that doesn't make those humans who crucified him any less culpable and doesn't make God any less angry at what they are doing. That's all super clear in the Bible, that God gets angry with the sin of humanity. I'm thinking it's fairly reasonable to think that God was the angriest in this moment that he had ever been in all of eternity. Don't you? And so, is it even possible that the Father might have changed course if Jesus had not prayed this prayer? Think outside the box for a minute. There are times in Scripture when God appears, at least, to change His mind, to relent, for example. The way present actions affect the future is a complicated thing to say nothing of how anything affects God. What I'm saying is that perhaps this prayer was necessary. Perhaps Jesus knew that it was necessary. I don't presume to understand how the sovereign plan of God works, but I do know that prayer changes things. Stuff that wouldn't have happened happens because of prayer. Perhaps this prayer from the cross was necessary to stave off the immediate wrath of God. Beyond that, Rabbi Jesus, the teacher, was continuing to practice what he had previously taught. Earlier he had said, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's just too hard. I can't do it. It hurts too much. You don't understand what they did to me. We who are imperfect and may even be wrong, we think we're right. And we who have wronged others more times in more ways than we know say it's too difficult to love our enemies. Even though Jesus, who was perfect and never wrong, prayed for the forgiveness of those very men who were torturing him to death, he did this even in the midst of his suffering. Not only was Jesus praying a real prayer, and not only was he practicing what he taught, but he was fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, 12 was written hundreds of years earlier, and it says this, The Lord will reward him with honor and power for sacrificing his life. Others thought he was a sinner, but he suffered for our sins and asked God to forgive us. Here Jesus is still making a point to fulfill prophecy. They have a flight to catch, by the way. I didn't offend them. They told me ahead of time. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Glad to have you here from Minnesota all the way. So he's praying a real prayer. He's practicing what he taught. And he's fulfilling prophecy. As Isaiah put it, he suffered for our sins and asked God to forgive us. Said that hundreds of years before Jesus did this. He's still making a point to fulfill prophecy, even from the cross. He's up on the cross. I mean, we, we hear that. He is nailed to a piece of wood, fulfilling prophecy. In fact, he fulfilled every single prophecy about the Messiah, even though some of those prophecies required his dying breath to be used up in speech. 
If Jesus were not the long-awaited Messiah, would he really have bothered at this point? I mean, the ruse was up at this point if he, if he wasn't really him. Would he have made a point to fulfill prophecy so perfectly even while in these final moments of agony? I think not. The first words of Christ from the cross represented one of the most important moments that has ever happened in human history. God the Son dying for our sin, even while asking God the Father to forgive us. The mercy and grace of God is truly amazing. The second statement. Jesus made from the cross is also recorded in Luke. He said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Those were his words. We know from scripture that this happens just before noon. So Jesus has been on the cross at this point for three hours. The clock continues to tick on his final moments. I'm not going to take time to read the whole scene today, but Jesus has been hearing from the two criminals who are being crucified on the cross on either side of him. This too fulfills prophecy from Isaiah, who predicted that, the, predicted that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors, thought of as a criminal. At first, apparently, both of the others are ridiculing him. But eventually, perhaps as the reality of death starts to set in, one of them asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus simply says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's all he says. What, he didn't walk the guy through the four spiritual laws? He didn't lead him to pray certain words. There was no spelling out the ABCs of salvation. Right. Why? Because Jesus knew this man had repentant faith, both in who he was and what he was doing on the cross. Apparently, that was enough to save him. Now, at this point, most of us had not heard this all of our lives. Our sense of justice would kick in, and we might find ourselves saying, what? I mean, think about it. Is this fair? Is this just in the sense of equality? What crime had this guy committed? Doesn't that matter? Only the worst criminals were crucified. What if this man had murdered somebody? What if he murdered someone close to you? In the biblical text, the man admits that he's guilty even that he's guilty enough to deserve crucifixion. Who admits they deserve to be tortured to death? This convicted criminal had clearly done something horrible, and yet all he has to do is ask Jesus to remember me, and Jesus promptly promises paradise, same paradise his closest followers would one day receive. Are you serious? This man hasn't lived a good life. This man never kept a daily quiet time. He never read his Bible or attended church. This man wasn't even baptized. He's never taken communion. He's actually a villain of some kind. Why does he get to go to paradise? I'll tell you why. Because in his dying moments from some tiny corner in his heart that had not yet been closed to God, and in his desperation, he made a barely perceptible step of faith. His faith was placed in exactly the right thing, the identity and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is all it takes. That's all it takes to go to paradise. If you need more on that, read Romans chapters 3 through 5. 
True faith in Christ is all that is required to receive the salvation He already earned on your behalf. Cry out to Jesus and you will be saved. Now, it's also true that this man missed out on a heck of a lot, isn't it? He missed out on a lifetime of knowing and serving God. And his faith never had the chance to produce good works because his faith came at the last moment. He missed out on the life God wanted for him here on earth, the abundant life Jesus came to give. And he's absolutely going to miss out on some eternal rewards. Jesus is so clear about that. You can lay up treasures in heaven. He didn't have any laid up. All that's true. And yet, this man was rescued from hell. And he did not miss out on paradise. There really is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I've seen a few myself, and those whose faith was real are now with Jesus. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Healed, forgiven, redeemed, fixed, made whole, changed forever. What a promise. For all those who simply believe in their hearts, open their mouths in a confession of faith, asking Jesus to do what only He can do, save. The Apostle John tells us about the third time Jesus opened His mouth from the cross. Jesus said to Mary, Dear woman, here is your son. To John, here is your mother. The clock is ticking down on his life and Jesus is thinking of others. Can't get out many words, but he gets these words out. When Jesus was a baby, a righteous man named Simeon had prophesied over his family, telling Mary, a sword shall pierce through your own soul. You think Mary had never thought about this moment before, I believe she knew all along this day was coming. I believe Jesus sold her ahead of time, just like he told the other disciples. And I believe Mary quite possibly got it better than they did. We can see this in her apparent composure at the cross prior to it. I believe she's, plus she was there. She spent her whole life preparing for this moment. There, there's some reason to believe that Mary may have had a, a more powerful hope in the resurrection than some of the others. Some things can be surmised by what the Bible doesn't say. Regardless of those reasonable conjectures, it's impossible to imagine how difficult this must have been for Mary. She couldn't have known it would be this horrid, this gruesome, this extreme. The baby promised by the angel Gabriel, the one conceived of the Holy Spirit within her womb, hanging before her now a broken, bleeding, and dying young man. We cannot imagine her grief. Let's talk about why these words were important enough to be spoken from the cross and recorded in the everlasting Word of God. Jesus does not call Mary mother here for several reasons, I think. First, he's moving away from the man Jesus to the glorified Lord Jesus. And he's trying to help Mary make that transition. See, folks, Mary needs a Savior too. She must move from seeing herself as his mother to seeing herself as his child, dependent upon the work he is doing on the cross. Still notice that Jesus cares not only about her spiritual needs, but her physical needs. Think about it. The cross is a central point of human history. Everything prior to this moment, all the centuries and millennia, 
pointed forward to these hours on the cross. Everything since then has pointed back to these brief moments. This was the sliver of time when God bought eternal life and spiritual freedom for us all, earning this great gift of salvation has been accepted by millions, if not billions, over history from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This was the pinnacle of human history representing our only hope, and yet Jesus stops the passion play long enough to ask one person, John, to take care of one other person, Mary. Now, why had Jesus not already taken care of this arrangement? Because last words are famous. Jesus wanted this to be remembered. He wanted to teach us something about God in a way we wouldn't forget. He wanted us to understand that God cares about the details of our lives. He's not so otherworldly that He does not know or care about our physical and emotional needs. He cares more than we know. In addition, I think Jesus also wanted us to see that we can serve him by serving others. Here is your mother, Jesus says. We talk about being Jesus to people. Well, John became Jesus to Mary for the rest of our life because Jesus said so. And because Jesus said so, we know that we are all called to represent him to others who need him. Who are you called to be Jesus to? Are you following through on that call? The days before us may afford more opportunities. Get ready. God gives and God takes away, the Bible says. Jesus was being taken away from Mary's life. This was a sacrifice for her, for her beyond words. But at the same time, she was being given John as a son. This may have been small comfort in the moment, but it became more and more profound to her as she spent her last days being cared for as a result of the direct command of Jesus to his beloved disciple John. Jesus has commanded us all to love and care for each other. And listen to me carefully. Real and precious people who are special to Jesus, like his mother was special to Jesus, will directly benefit when we obey. I think it's also significant that no one else was mentioned from the cross. Mary truly was highly favored among women, as the angel had declared 33 years earlier. Mary was the first to know Jesus, and here he honors her with some of his final words. I wonder if it's not actually true that behind every great man of history stands a great mother. Clearly, this was true of Jesus. Next, both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Jesus is thinking Scripture. And he directly quotes one of the Messianic Psalms, repeating the exact words of Psalm 22, verse 1, the words of David. Matthew tells us about the time frame, saying, at noon... Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that God placed on him the sins of us all, and he bore our punishment. As God put our sin on him, it would seem 
Jesus experienced a dark feeling of being forsaken. And in order to express himself, he quoted Psalm 22.1. Why have you forsaken me? Some commentaries say that Jesus made this statement just as the light returned, but I'm convinced otherwise. Look at the scripture. The Bible actually says that darkness fell until three o'clock, but then it says at about three o'clock, Jesus cried out and made this statement. There's room for interpretation here, but it takes, makes more sense to me to think that Jesus made this cry at the final moment of darkness before the light returned, not, not right after three o'clock after the light had returned. It seems to me that these are words uttered during the darkness. In fact, I believe that the light returned immediately after Jesus said these words. This is important because I believe the return of the light and the dispelling of the darkness was a message from the Father demonstrating that he had, in fact, not forsaken his son, but rather this is simply how Jesus felt as the sin of the world was placed upon him. After all, we know that ultimately God had not forsaken Jesus, don't we? As the light returned, I believe onlookers got the message that Jesus was not forsaken at all. And this may have even been one of the main reasons Jesus said these words. So that people could see in this moment, as the light returned, people of faith saw a foreshadowing of the resurrection, which was less than three days away. Make no mistake, Jesus was not forsaken by God. This fact is something we celebrate next Sunday. By the way, David had not been forsaken either. When he wrote the 22nd Psalm, it just felt that way. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been there. But remember, David also made this prophetic statement, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your godly one to rot in the grave. In his first sermon after his resurrection, the apostle Peter, after Christ's resurrection, the apostle Peter proclaimed that this verse from David had actually always been a prophetic message about Jesus. And so although in the last moment of those three hours of darkness, our Lord felt abandoned and forsaken, he also knew that ultimately he could not be completely forsaken, even as he cried out, the light returned. Samuel the prophet said, the Lord will not abandon his chosen people, for that would dishonor his great name. As a child of God adopted into his family by faith in Christ, you will never be forsaken. Hear that in these dark days. If you're God's child by faith in Jesus, you will never be forsaken. It may feel like it. The way it felt like it to Jesus, it may be dark. So dark. But you'll never be forsaken. Even in death, we hold on to the clear promise of resurrection at His return. One last thought about this moment. We know that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish concept of Passover. Passover was a celebration of the salvation of God, which had come to the Jews during their exodus from Egyptian slavery. They had been set free, served or saved by the hand of God through an event they later referred to as the Passover. And how amazing it is that Jesus was arrested and crucified during the night and day of the annual Passover feast rather than any other day of the year. I wonder if God orchestrated that, you think? Remember that during the final Egyptian plague, resulting in their freedom from bondage, salvation was ultimately gained for the Jews by a simple step of faith, obedience and faith. They were called upon to sacrifice a lamb 
and to spread the blood on and above the wooden doorposts of their homes. A foreshadowing of the blood-soaked cross of Christ. God told them to kill a lamb and spread blood on their doorposts and crossbeams so that the angel of death would pass over them. So they'd be spared. As opposed to the Egyptians who would not be sacrificing a lamb and therefore would not be passed over. Everything happened the way God said it would. The Jews were ultimately saved and freed from slavery. Passover was the annual Jewish celebration of this great deliverance which had been granted by the blood of a lamb. The Bible says repeatedly that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And it's very interesting to discover all the ways he fulfilled the idea of Passover, the celebration of which is, of course, the precursor to our own celebration of communion, which we will share in momentarily. Can't go into all that today, but let's look at one thing that happened just before the first Passover. The book of Exodus tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not see each other, and no one moved. Three days of darkness just prior to the first Passover, three hours of darkness on Passover day as the ultimate Passover lamb is sacrificed on the cross. This is yet another way God clearly demonstrated the identity and purpose of Christ, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John tells us that after the light had returned and knowing that all was now complete, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Good timing with my water, huh? wasn't on purpose. I am thirsty. Somehow Jesus continues to think about fulfilling the scriptures even in the last moment. Several of the messianic psalms refer to thirst. One says, if only one person would show some pity, if only one would turn and comfort me, but instead they give me poison for food, they offer me sour wine for my thirst. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus hundreds of years later. John tells us that someone responded to Jesus' request with sour wine. He writes, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Apparently, this liquid was all that was available for those being crucified. Now, this was not regular wine, but wine vinegar, something like what we might use in a salad dressing. It was used at that time as a stimulant, not to be consumed in mass quantity and not to quench thirst, really, but in very small amounts, simply to revive someone. So basically, they gave Jesus espresso. I knew it was in the Bible somewhere. Just have to dig a little bit deep. Pretty sure that's what it says in the message translation. I feel sure Jesus would have much preferred water in that moment, but this apparently was all that was allowed. And besides, it fulfilled the prophecy that we just read. It's helpful to remember that earlier in the crucifixion process, Jesus had been offered wine mixed with spices, which are understood to have had a pain-killing quality. The Bible says he rejected that drink and would not take it. So don't get confused between that scene, which took place just before the crucifixion, and this scene near the end. Now, why are these words important? Why did Jesus ask for a drink beyond the fact that he wanted to fulfill prophecy once more? Well, think about how hard it must have been to speak at this point. It's after three o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus has been on the cross for at least six hours with nothing to drink and struggling to breathe. Perhaps he needed this moisture to be able to vocalize his final words with enough volume for all to hear. 
Matthew and Mark tell us his final words came as a loud cry. But notice something else. John says they used the stalk of a hyssop plant to raise the drink up to Jesus' lips. Where have we heard about, a hyssop, about hyssop branches before? At the first Passover. The Bible says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or, your gun, or a young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a base and then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frame of your house. And here we have a hyssop branch being raised to the lips of the final Passover lamb, our salvation, Jesus Christ. The Bible says after he had received the vinegar, Jesus cried out, It is finished. It is finished. Now, you might think this would have been the last thing Jesus said, and I think to most people's ears that day, this may well have been the last, but apparently a few people heard something else just after this. We'll get to that in a minute. Regardless, I do believe this was the dramatic moment. This was the climax. I think this was technically the last public proclamation of Christ from the cross, meaning this was the final oration that Jesus meant for everyone to hear that day. In the original Greek text, it is finished is just one word, tetelestai, tetelestai. This was a common word used to express the accomplishment of a task, but very often it was used by merchants in business. And in that context, it meant the debt is paid in full. In fact, we actually still have original Roman tax receipts printed on papyrus, the paper that time. And across these ancient documents is stamped the word tetelestai, paid in full. This is how the word was used. The believing criminal was still alive to hear Jesus say tetelestai. He must have found great comfort. He must have been overcome with thankfulness to know that even his debt to God was paid in full. But if you and I understand our own desperation before a holy God, we will be equally thankful for this word and what it means. I don't have a tattoo. I don't plan on getting a tattoo. If I was going to get a tattoo, it might be this word. Don't take me to Leviticus, okay? Let's just, just, just table it. It's a really great word. That's what I'm saying. The believing criminal was still alive and he heard him say that. My question is, can you hear him say that today? Can you take it personally? When you hear that word, tetelestai, and you understand what it means, does it feel personal to you? Does it seem that Jesus was talking about you? The reason I ask is that this gift of forgiveness has to be received by faith. Not every human was saved that day. We're not universalists. Not every human was saved that day when Jesus said this word. Why? Because God said this gift would need to be received by faith. And not everyone has received it. Picture it with me for a moment. Jesus on the cross, dying to pay for sin. At the end, declaring, it is finished. Is that personal for you? Is it finished for you? Up to this point, has it ever felt personal? If you'd have to say no, I'd say that means you've never accepted God's gift of salvation by faith. What if that could change today? 
What if today you could hear Jesus say to you, this paid in full, all of it, every sin, past, present, future, done, finished, paid in full. You're completely forgiven. And when you die, you will be with me in paradise. Can you hear him say that by faith today? Is your heart not longing for exactly this? Peace with God, forgiveness, new life, to have your debt wiped clean before God? How do you get such a thing? Oh, the ways humans try. How do you get it? You simply believe in what Christ did for you and you receive it as a gift. That's the twofold nature of the kind of faith required to be saved. You don't just kind of think it in your head as maybe being true. You have to surrender. You have to receive God's gift. Why not today? Before I even finish out this message with the final point, I want to ask you to pray with me if you would. And if you're somebody today who isn't sure, would you listen to him today? The Holy Spirit is here and he's saying to you, my son, my daughter, to tell us die. It's already paid. I went to great lengths to pay the debt for you. Won't you receive my gift? Turn away from all the other things you try to do. To be okay with God. Get down on your knees and your heart. Open up your hands and say yes. I receive the gift of salvation by faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. Who he is and what he did. Let it be applied to me. Save me. Some would say, I need to go on and preach another whole message now about how you have to follow him. And there are times for that, and I preach those kinds of things throughout. But he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If indeed your faith is true, I believe God will change your heart. He will change your life. Amen. Luke reports that Jesus spoke one last time after this proclamation, perhaps quietly. I think as a prayer, a few of them heard it. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke also tells us that when Jesus had uttered these words, he breathed his last. It's like he prayed this prayer and breathed his last all at once. The Bible says that when Joseph of Arimathea came to ask Pilate if he could take the body of Jesus and bury it. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. Normally crucifixion took quite a bit longer, but after the soldiers assured Pilate that he was dead, and remember they had thrust a spear into his heart for good measure, Pilate consented to the burial. The significance of this very last saying of Christ and the relative brevity of his crucifixion is that apparently Jesus willed his death just as he willed the crucifixion. No one could have crucified him had he not chosen it. And it would appear that he even chose the moment of his death. Sadly, I've actually been in the room when a few people have passed away. 
And I can tell you that normally people do not speak words literally with their last breath as Jesus did. It can happen occasionally, but it's not, it's not often. He essentially said, here I come, Father, and there he went. At that very moment. I've heard it said before that Jesus was murdered. That is incorrect. The Bible never says Jesus was murdered, rather that he submitted himself to execution. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, not murdered, as if out of his control. And it's abundantly clear in Scripture that the timing of his death was his own. He was always slipping away until it was the right time. Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. Jesus went to the cross by choice, and he gave up his spirit by choice. This is not murder, nor is it suicide, but rather this is similar to a hero jumping on a grenade to save others. Jesus chose to die so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. John actually tells us that Jesus bowed his head before saying these words and giving up his spirit. This in contrast to normal crucifixion where a person gradually and finally would not be able to exhale. And at that point, the victim's head would slump forward, signaling to onlookers that he was dead. Everyone knew that a bowed head was the sign of death on a cross. If the head was bowed, it was all over. But according to Luke, Jesus bowed his head first, then uttered these words, and then breathed his last. I believe Jesus died on an exhale just to show he was laying down his life by choice. The Greek word Luke uses to convey what Jesus said here in our translation, the word commit. Uh, some say commend. Uh, it's the Greek word tithaumi. Again, this is a financial term, the root of which is tithe. The word tetheomi means to make a deposit. This is to entrust something to someone with the expectation that it will be returned. As an act of faith, Jesus gives up his spirit, entrusting himself to the Father for the next three days, knowing he will be brought back to life as he had previously predicted on numerous occasions. Moments from death by asphyxiation, Jesus basically says, Father, just go ahead and take my life right now. And God answers his prayer, as always. And so the Spirit of God the Son is placed into the hands of God the Father until the resurrection. These very last words of Christ were designed to show us that even his choice to die was an act of faith. As we close today, we're going to remember the death of Christ in the way he told us to remember it. Speaking of communion, um, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We need to keep in mind that the imagery of that last supper with his disciples pointed specifically to his death on the cross. It was about death. It was about suffering. It was about a broken body and shed blood. And not just remembering Jesus in a general way, but we're called to specifically remember his death and his sacrifice. It's exactly the point of communion. Remembering the physical sacrifice of Christ with gratitude in our hearts. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.